Welcome to Authentic Living with Roxanne, a place where we have conscious conversations about things that really matter in our lives. And now, here's your host, Roxanne Derhage. Hi, everyone. It's uh, Roxanne Durhaj of Authentic Living with Roxanne. Thanks for tuning in again. Today, I have a colleague, Charmaine Hammond. Um, Charmaine and I uh, met through uh, the Canadian Association of Professional Speakers, uh, where, of which I'm a member. And Charmaine has been a part of CAPS for how long, Charmaine? Have you been? Oh, gosh. I think it's more than 10 years now. Wow. <laughs> and she's, she has one of the highest uh, designations in the speaking world, which is we is the CSP, which is a certified speaking professional. And so Charmaine, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Really looking forward to the conversation. Same here. So Charmaine, um, you know, it's an interesting, this uh, interview was set up through um, another um, podcast situation. And, and then when I looked at it and I said, you know, I should have thought about this all along because I've looked at my colleagues right. um, at CAPS and I've interviewed a lot, but, and then when, when it came up that she talked about trust, I said, my goodness, we have to definitely have this conversation. Yeah. So, Charmaine, tell me a little bit, you know, you've been, you've written five best-selling books. You've been obviously speaking a long time and she has something exciting that she's going to share with us about a little animated um, short that she's developed. What's, what, what got you started kind of working in the realm of, of trust in leadership? Well, my first career was actually as a correctional officer. I worked in the jail system in Ontario and then moved into my first leadership role uh, at a young offender facility and learned a lot, <laughs> a lot by trial and error. When I left the correctional system, uh, the community that I moved to, which was Northern Alberta, Fort McMurray, uh, the jail wasn't open then. And so I needed to change careers. And I uh, started running, uh, was the executive director of a nonprofit organization. And in between all that, I went back to school and got trained as a mediator. I discovered in working in corrections, the power of trust and the power of effective communications in conflict and, and in crisis. And so went back to school, eventually got a master's degree, opened up a mediation practice. And again, there you can imagine <laughs> how much I learned about trust and the importance of that in leadership. I was facilitating uh, a lot of community and workplace conflict scenarios. So that's how I kind of got started in all this and then opened up my own business uh, almost 25 years ago and have been speaking training uh, since then. So let's talk about trust um, going back to corrections, right? Yeah. Because obviously, and I would say this, that most people that are unfortunately involved with the law, there's been a lack of safety potentially for with them mm -hmm. and relationships for good reason. A lot of unfortunate things that probably would have happened in their life. So I would say being guarded is the first thing they can be assured about. Assured yeah. about. I need to protect myself. Because unfortunately, you know, maybe things didn't go so well for me. And now I'm in a situation where I'm not going to let down my guard. No, like I may right. let it down, but it's going to take a lot. So yeah. what did you learn about, I'm going to use the word disarming people, because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, you know, I think most people aren't wanting to be in those facilities, right? They, you know, yeah. 
they probably think, well, I don't know how I ended up there, but mm-hmm. there must be certain skills that you intuitively maybe had originally, but th- that you accentuated in being in the, that environment. Well, one of the early lessons I had in life as a child was around the importance of respect and kindness. And I grew up in a family where that was modeled. And and um, I, I, I used those early lessons when I worked in the jail system. And that really helped me disarm people, as you referred to it as, and build trust. I noticed that a lot of my colleagues would have a different approach to working relationships, whether that be with the residents or inmates. Um that were serving time or whether it was with staff. And I started to discover as well the importance of trust, not only amongst each other in our team, but trusting my own skills and abilities. And I had some hard lessons in that. And I'm going to come back to something you said earlier offline, the, the, what can happen when we show up as our best version of ourselves or being authentic that's really critical in this um, in that working environment because when I worked with young offenders, there uh, this was a really good reminder for me that there was so much distrust on their part, and when there was incongruence in a staff's um, the way they speak and the way they show up, it immediately put up flags for the young offenders and it took a long time for them to move past that and build trust. So I applied those early lessons of respect and kindness and everybody has a story and there's a reason why they're in there and um, respect can go a long way. And my mom told me when I was a, I was in elementary school, she said, there's always something to find that you like about somebody. And in tough scenarios and in tough relationships, sometimes that's what you have to look for. And when I had my eyes open that way, I was actually able to see things with the inmates and the residents that I wouldn't have seen if I came from the place of judgment. For example, there was uh, one inmate that just stands out, 16 year old, and he was just a profound writer. We came across his diary. And of course, for security, you have to check the diary to see what's written in there, which I never liked doing. I didn't like reading the diaries and personal thoughts, but they were actually letters that he had written to the staff. So when he had made a mistake or acted out, um, sometimes he wouldn't apologize to the person verbally, but he wrote about it. And the stories were incredible. And what he was learning about being in the program, being human was so profound. And and that changed my perspective of him when I thought this is, I I can't wait for him to grow up and I'm going to buy his books because he is a profound writer. And it was just as he spilled, you know, spilled his emotions, spilled his guts, so to speak. So I think that's a that's an important point, right? So of course, with my training, and I started with the Metro Toronto Police in you mm. know twenty one years old, out of right out of school, and you know that incremental elements. And I remember, you know, it's interesting. So I'm from Trinidad and Tobago, mm-hmm. and grew up there. Came to go to school and did that whole thing. And I, I remember because, of course, again, not growing up with a lot of you know uncertainty. And I remember they they sent me out, and there was a young Jamaican girl, and she had stabbed her grandmother. And when I, when I listened to her story, it was so profound in that there was a, such a level of lack of respect that, you know, the, if you looked at the act in of itself, 
yeah. which was horrendous, uh, Charmaine, at best. Mm-hmm. But when I, you know, when she already let down her guard and then she started to talk to me, she talked a lot about all the ways that um, so many things that had been wronged over mm-hmm. years and years and years, you know, which I, I finally understood, not agreeing with what she did, but understood why someone would get to that point. So going back to that whole incremental level that um, in communication and trust, it's the slightest thing, you know, that mm-hmm. people are reading, right? And, and you know, obviously you as a, you know, someone that's been doing this for a long time, and as a, especially as a mediator, I've done a bit of mediation in my time, not a lot, yeah. um, but people are reading microscopic details. Mm-hmm. So singing to the choir, and then, you know, there's some inflection of something nonverbal that cues up someone that they're not even aware, potentially consciously, and they're reacting to it. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I'm going to assume that you're pretty much, I'm a couple specialist um, in, as one of my designations. So I, I do a lot of that kind of mediation. Mm-hmm. So when you went back and you started to mediate, how does that play through, right? Because I think most people, mm-hmm. I think they're well-intentioned, right? Yeah. Yep. But yeah. sometimes they don't realize how some of those subtleties kind of scream at the other person on the other end that's trying to kind of find agreement with them. Absolutely. There, we all have these patterns of communication, whether they're in our family relationships, whether it's in our workplace relationships or community relationships, we have a way of communicating and it may change from person to person. And I notice very quickly as a mediator, conflict brings that out onto the surface. And when I was mediating divorce mediations, for example, separation agreements, I saw that happen a lot, that how an individual would speak with me versus the other person in the room was sort of just completely opposite almost. And there's so many assumptions that people make. And I I discovered that the closer the relationship, the more assumptions that get made. And so assumptions that you should just know what I think, feel or need, assumptions about what a person's actions or words actually meant. And, and, and then there's a lot of drama that happens in conflict. Um, some of it is pure emotion. And then a lot of it is this other level of drama, the assumptions that we made, and then we act on these assumptions. Those assumptions break down trust so quickly. And when I moved away from family mediation and worked in the corporate world and mediated corporate disputes, I spent a lot of time in those processes rebuilding trust because didn't matter how good the solution was that the team created together. If they didn't trust in themselves to live up to the agreement they created together, or they didn't trust in their team that they were going to live up to it, it was just words. Mm -hmm. And so the trust was critical. So, you know, what I find a lot of times when I'm coaching or even speaking is that sometimes people assume, let's use kind of what we've been going through in the corporate world Um, if there's, you know, most people had to go home the next day and kind of set up shop and kind of left some, some, I'm going to say unresolved issues. Mm -hmm. And then they're being told, you know, we have to now communicate like you and I have, you and I've met in person, but there's been some unresolved issues with my manager or the senior team. And then now I'm home and now we're all going to be nicey nice Mm -hmm. (laughs) and we're going to all get along and we're going to be productive again. Right. <laughs> so, I, what, yeah. what, when you've been working with people or you know out there, what have kind of things do you suggest 
to them. Mm-hmm. There's been unresolved concerns and now they want to start developing trust. And now you're not, you're not front and center. You're not at the water cooler. You're not oh. at having lunch, all those types of things. What are some of the things that you've suggested to your clients or even spoken about that, that helps? That's such a great question. And I've, I've seen and heard that the levels of uh, conflict and apprehension and, and distrust seem to be increasing in teams. So if, if you're listening and that's happening to you, there are many other teams in the same boat, because as you said, these conflicts or disagreements or assumptions never got a chance potentially to be worked out the way that they would typically be in person through a healthy conversation. Yet the issue isn't gone. It's just been parked or pushed under the rug and, you know, pushing things under the rug just makes for a bumpy, lumpy rug. And so conflict always comes back when it's not resolved. It comes back in strange ways often. And there's a quote that I love. I don't know who Judge Esty is. And Judge Esty wrote this quote, but the quote is, conflict is not like wine. It doesn't get better with age. And so we've got, in some cases, conflicts that have been parked for almost a year and a half right now. And as teams, some teams are going back into the workforce, they're finding that their uh, trust factor is really being challenged. Communications feeling a little fuzzy or uncomfortable, a little bit more blaming that's going on or judgment. And it's really important for us to work these conflicts through. And I've seen some leaders actually avoid the conflicts, whereas when they were in the workplace, they and they saw how people were interacting, they wouldn't have let that go. They would have either facilitated a conversation or checked in with people. And with folks that are working kind of in a virtual way, and that's how the team um, gets together, there's, I've, seen, I've seen it happen where there's a, a bit more avoidance going on. I've also seen some interesting things on Zoom and other uh, digital platforms virtual platforms where conflict is showing up. And I'll give you an example. In a training session I did, I noticed that somebody's camera would flick off. So the picture would just come up when a certain individual would speak. And I thought, oh, isn't that funny that, so I I just thought, isn't that odd? And I was not even thinking that there was something going on. I just thought there's a tech issue. So I called it and I said, oh, I'm just checking in to see if there's a technology issue. I noticed that a couple people's cameras are kind of coming on and off and we'd agreed ahead of the meeting that we're all gonna leave our cameras on. So just wondering if there's anything I can do to support you in technology. Not that I can support technology very well. But then, and then I noticed that when I started speaking, the camera was <laughs> go off. So I just thought this is really interesting. At the break, I actually provided the leader with feedback and said, you know, I'm no, this is what I'm noticing. And she said, yeah, I think there's go, something going on with these two individuals. They've had tension before. It's never been addressed. And she did a tremendous job just at kind of represencing the group and just inviting people to still have their camera on. And then she followed up with the two of them with a phone call right away. And I believe she was setting up a meeting with them. And I thought that was great leadership because she wanted to address it right away. The team all noticed it. So that's the other thing. It's just like when you're all around the boardroom together, (laughs) you know, if the team notices it, um, generally we need to deal with it in some way. And it was, it was kind of breaking down the conversation. And I thought she did an exceptional job just in a very respectful way of supporting people later. 
And we do see conflict emerge in interesting ways in the virtual space right now. Absolutely, because the patterns of behavior, I would say your team's looking at that, right, Charmaine? And they're waiting to see, is anybody going to catch this? Because I often say that this is a symptom of other things going on in the periphery of the team. And, you know, if they, if that had gone unaddressed, you know, not, not, not online, Mm -hmm. but in the right way that it sounds like the leader was taking the steps, that shows the others that we can't get away with this. Yeah. 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 And that's powerful because then people realize okay, well, I may be having an issue with Roxanne or Charmaine. Um, They're going to address it. So I maybe should try something a bit more direct versus kind Mm -hmm. of being kind of going underground to kind of have it play out in a meeting like that. So I think that's, that's brilliant. Now let's talk a little bit about return to work because, you know, because that's, we're we're hearing about this. We're hearing about the, you know, the new resignations we're hearing about people saying, I'm not going back in person. We're talking about human rights and mm. so many, you know, it's like the 401, you know, the 401 from being mm-hmm. from Ontario. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's like a major uh, traffic jam is coming and yeah. we're talking about it, but how are we going to mediate all the, mm-hmm. all the moving parts? So I wanted to chat a little bit about kind of return to work collaboration, conflict, all that yeah. stuff that I know at level, every level of management, they're, they're thinking about it. And I know I'm going to assume they're talking about it and starting to yeah. put some things in place. Yeah, it's a, such a great conversation because it is the reality for so many organizations that they're returning to the office location. And it might not be everybody. The team might be sort of on rotating schedules. So there's a lot of unknowns for many workplaces. And from a change management perspective is that when people don't have answers, they typically make them up. So this is an opportunity for leaders right now to demonstrate and model effective, clear, cascading messages with their team. Because the more that you can communicate, even if it's the, it, our plan is still the same as last Tuesday, Here's what we talked about last Tuesday, even if it's reiterating and just saying there's no change, here's the plan. It provides a sense of trust in the process. It provides a heightened sense of trust in leadership and it reduces assumptions and gossip. And so one leader um, that I can think about, she used a tip that I gave in a workshop and and I'm going to rely on a seven-year-old genius. I was facilitating a divorce mediation and, and the parents had concluded their mediations, and they wanted to share their agreement just to let the kids know what, you know, how life is going to look for them. And we practiced it. We did role plays. And and it was a beautiful way that the parents wanted to communicate together what would be the same and what would be different. The parents kind of went off script. So everything that we practiced went out the window when the children came in the room and they started not with all the things that are going to be the same. They started with everything that's going to be different. And this little seven-year-old jumps off the couch and he says, people, just tell me what is not changing. (laughs) And I thought, oh, this is brilliant. And when we do that in our workplaces and in our families, when we let people know what's what's not changing, our company values are not changing. The customers that we're dealing with are not changing. It's the same. You know, our policies other than these two are not changing. Um, You know, our our. Um, our 
corporate vision and strategic goals are the same as they were three months ago. So whenever you can provide that, what is not changing it, it again, creates trust in the process, trust in the organization. And, and then it is not so overwhelming for people. Absolutely. It doesn't, yeah. You still talk about what is changing, but when you can really capture people for people, what is not changing? I even had a leader who said, everything's changing. I said, well, you're changing computer systems. And she said, no, I said, then say that our computer and technology is all going to be the same. The way that we enter our data is all going to be the same. So because people start panicking, sometimes thinking that everything will be different. And in fact, lots might be the same. Well, and that creates a place of psychological safety, right? Amidst, I think we, I can say that, you know, we've been through a lot of trauma on every yeah. level from a macro to a micro level in, in real words. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. people have lost family members, yeah. uh, you know, everybody's been touched. I was finally touched. Mm-hmm. I lost a cousin three weeks ago. Oh, um, you, know, and you, you know, you're looking at it mm-hmm. and you're thinking, and there's people that have, you know, all over the world, like with the spikes in India and, you know, mm-hmm. like all these companies and you're dealing with all yeah. the things that have not stayed the same. Yeah. So what a nice space to start because we're trying to restore psychological safety yes. and we're, people are still scared. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And they're thinking what, you know, I, I feel so unsteady mm-hmm. and all you're telling me is about what, you know, what's going to be different yet again, mm. which is going to build into that fear, which is going to make people more unsteady. Yeah. So yeah. for leaders out there that are hearing you, Charmaine, what are some things that they should stick to what is going to stay the same? Communicate, communicate, communicate. Yeah. What else should they do? It, check in on people. Um, you know, I had one, a colleague of mine who said, oh, we haven't had a team meeting for four months. And I thought, what? Because she used to have team meetings twice a month. And, and because they weren't physically showing up in the same, you know, boardroom or meeting room, it just stopped. And so making sure that there's still routine and structure and, and the activities that help your team connect with one another are important, whether that's meetings. One of my clients is a nonprofit organization. They do a Friday coffee hour. And it, it is like routine. It, you know, even if two people show up, it still happens and they have a coffee break together. And it, no talking about work, just being in the coffee room virtually together. So making sure that you're finding ways to unite the team, uh, not all necessarily for a meeting or for business, uh, checking in on people. And the other piece I really encourage leaders to, if, if something is seeming off with someone or if conflict seems to be happening, you'll be so well served, so will the people that are experiencing this if it's addressed early on. You know, a lot of times people's intentions, and you said earlier, are really good intentions, but they don't talk about things because they don't know how. They don't know how to tell their leader they're fearful or under stress or afraid to return under the conditions. And it's really important that leaders create that foundation for people to have these conversations because the challenges will then show up in other ways. Fear will show up in other ways. And to create the space, I would think, Charmaine, for people to be open. Um, you know, I even think of, of um, friends that have been mm. so- scared and I'm, and I'm, I'm generally, okay, I'm going to get a bit of information. I'm going to use what I can, and I'm just going to continue to live my life. But I had some friends, um, you know, one or two of them were quite crippled. And I was like, what, you know, and then I stopped and I said, okay, let me 
help me understand what you're experiencing. So, you know, because it's, it does alter things. It does strain things, right? So if that's yeah. happening in the workplace, like if you have a team of 10 and let's say you have two that are in, in sync with what, what you're thinking and all other eight are kind of like, you know, like tops, like what, what's that energy that's going to get created? And yeah. there's no right or wrong way to do it because everybody's, you know, home life is different and their reality and how they take in information is different. So I think laying the foundation of trust, which is really whatever you share, it doesn't matter. I need to hear what you're, how mm-hmm. you're doing, returning to work that allows the leader and the leadership team to create the best possible kind of reintegration. Mm, beautifully stated. So important. So let's talk a little bit about the fun part, which I'm excited about, <laughs> about your, your animated film and um, tell us all about it. And I didn't now I could say, I did not know you were um, in this kind of work and it's about mental health, which is really, yeah. you know, I talk everything related to mental well-being. So tell me about this and um, I'm sure everybody's going to be fascinated to hear about it as well. <laughs> Thank you. Well, and I didn't know I was going to be in this world either five years ago. <laughs> and, and, and it's so interesting for me that passion projects um, find me for the right time and the right reason. And uh, the movie is called Back Home Again. It's an animated movie that will be released this fall, 2021. We're super excited. And it's a story based on the Fort McMurray Wood Buffalo wildfires. It's written by Michael Mankowski, who is an incredible screenwriter and uh, producer and is a Fort McMurrayite. He was born and raised in the community that experienced, um, you know, the whole community was evacuated for a number of weeks and 88,000 people to be exact. And after the fires, then there was a flood in the community a couple of years later, and then the pandemic. This is a community that has gone through a lot. And Michael wanted to create a movie, a story that would help people heal from disaster and for crisis, and that could help people around the world in addition to Fort McMurray with Buffalo region. And so this animation is now a 30 minute movie. It started out to be much shorter. It includes a incredible all-star cast who have all donated their time. So including um, Ed Asner, Catherine O'Hara, Michael J. Fox, <laughs> Martin Short, Kim Basinger, uh, Tom Green, and the list goes on and on. Just an incredible cast who have all come on board to be a part of this and to help us um, share conversations and in fact inspire conversations around mental health and that's what the movie really is it's it's a a conversation starter around community and mental health and now in the world with everybody having this shared experience of a pandemic even though our individual experiences will be very different from to the next person but we've all gone through a very big crisis um, together and, right, and all our mental, mental health issues. <laughs> right. Like I, I've said to, uh, you know, I would, you know, deal with my clients or whatever. And I'd say, if anybody's telling you their mental health has not been impacted, I'm going to say you have to check their pulse because yeah. we've all been through so much. You know, I remember, Absolutely. you know, I live in Falls here in, in, in Ontario. And I remember, because I've always worked, I worked in trauma um, back in, you know, the late night 80s. Wow. Police. So I learned something quite really, you know, early on, I, I quit looking at city TV news because what would happen, Charmaine, is 
I would watch the news. I would be going on in on midnights and whatever was on the news I would deal with. So one of my mental health strategies very long time ago, and I was quite young, is I will not look at the news. I would mm-hmm. look at world he- headlines. Yeah. I would look at maybe a little bit of local news and that would be it. So I hadn't left my house. I wasn't watching the news. You know, we're all in lockdown. Mm-hmm. I go to the grocery store, right? Because, you know, I need some food. Mm-hmm. There's all these people in lines. And I'm like, what is, is, some, is something going on? Well, I didn't realize they had instituted the only letting it. And I'm like sitting there in my car and I'm going through this thing to say, did something? And then I realized, oh my goodness. And sure enough, then I Mm -hmm. Googled it in my car and I realized, and then it was like, it was a hard thing for me to, I'm thinking I have to go stand in a line now. Mm -hmm. How am I going to function doing this often? It was the first time. And I'm you know, I generally don't worry about things, but for the first time I started to realize how real it was. Yeah. And then I felt a bit of panic just sitting there in my car thinking, I got to go in that line and I have to wait for 20 other people. And it's going to take me 20, you know, uh, probably three times the amount of time of what I, I just taken for granted. Mm-hmm. Before, right. So yeah, absolutely. That was just, it blew me away. So yeah. I would say that most of us, you know, um, in history, as we go back and with your movie, which I think is going to be amazing. I would, you know, mm-hmm. let me know um, when it's coming out because I'd love to be able to promote it out to the channels that uh, would help me. We all need to hear those stories and to realize how real it is and past trauma, you know, and many people are have had additional trauma coming into this, uh, what happens yeah. and what, you know, what we need to look at for future going on as we kind of try to reintegrate and make sense of life again, right? So I think yes. your movie probably will be very, very helpful. Yeah, I, I, I love what you've just said about the reminder that uh, one trauma or one crisis can actually bring up all kinds of past resolved and unresolved trauma for people. And, and uh, Canadian Mental Health Association and Canadian Red Cross are two of our partners on this project. And I was listening recently to a conversation that they had on a panel discussion about mental health. And two things that you know are just etched in my brain from that is that, A, it's okay not to be okay. And I thought this is an important reminder for us that uh, right now it's okay not to be okay. And the second reminder that they talked about in that conversation was the importance of asking for help and, and reaching out um, that people aren't alone. Although it can, we can feel very alone when we experience crisis or disaster or change, you know, community or workplace. And the, I think that's such an important reminder for us and, and that in teams and workplaces for us to be observant when we're present and we're mindful, we notice uh, things about people that might be different or might not quite seem right. And that's a great opportunity for us to show stewardship and support um, and kindness to other people and just checking in with them. And the permissiveness to have openness to say, hey, Roxanne, are you okay? I know you're yes. not bubbly or, you know, you're not normally talking yeah. a lot. And I just realized that lately you, you're not been as talkative. Um, yeah. Is there anything I can, I can help you with? Or I'm yeah. here if you ever, you know, want to chat about things. And I think just going back to basic kindness, uh, Charmaine, as we all maneuver this and, you know, go back into different environments and, 
the one thing that I think of is when I um, would do trauma responses and I was, you know, I'd done them for years Mm -hmm. uh, when I was frontline is within 72 hours of a trauma, you get into the workplace because generally you can capture what's happening. Mm. Um, But think about this 72 hours. And then we would identify potentially people that would have issues based on other traumas. So think about this for two years now, we've been going through an ongoing trauma. Yeah. So it's going to take a little bit more employers to recognize it's going to take, you know, um, reintegration is going to take a little bit longer and it's not going to be the same trajectory. It's going to take longer and just gentleness and kindness, you know, to be able to, you know, help people out in whatever capacity that they need. That's so true because I think sometimes um, people have an assumption or belief that, people will get back into the swing of things and everything will be normal. Like what normal is, I don't know, but that may be how one person leads their life, but that doesn't mean that that's how everyone copes and grieves and deals with things. So I I think the other skill that's going to be so important going forward, and we've been practicing this for the last couple of years is patience, Mm -hmm. being patient with people and learning to be okay that with the fact that not all information or answers will be available in the moment that you need them. And, you know, the last couple of years living in a virtual world, we've got a lot of practice on those two items. They're going to be important now. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, this has been amazing, Charmaine. And, you know, I know when we met before, obviously we go to these conferences and there's so many people and you want to talk to, to them. And I, I, you know, I hope that I know our conference is virtual yet again, yes, I know. but, um, you know, as we get, we were able to get together again, I'm sure our paths mm-hmm. will cross the person that I would love to spend the time in person again, but thank you so much. So again, um, any last words you want to share and please tell people about the, uh, the short again, we sure. will put it in the link and um, then we'll go from there. Yeah. I just, I just want to remind us all to take a moment every day to just do something that boosters boosts our own resilience. And um, I kind of think of resilience as a bank account. We've got to keep putting into it for it to be there when we need it. And so just taking time, uh, taking time for you, I believe is not selfish. It's important and it's necessary as a leader. Um, The stronger we are and the healthier we are, the better able we are to support all the people that uh, we work with. And the movie Back Home Again, I think the best thing would be to do is check out the trailer on the website, backhomeagainmovie.com. And that's the same handle for all the socials. Awesome. Awesome. So thanks again. So for everyone listening, do something today to put to increase the amount in your bank account around your your resilience um, in small bursts every single day, and it becomes a cumulative effect. So for anyone wanting more information, authentic leadership with your teams, please reach out at RoxanneDurhodge.com. Thanks for tuning in to Authentic Living with Roxanne, creating the space for positive, healthy change. Roxanne is a keynote speaker, psychotherapist, and coach. To work with Roxanne, visit RoxanneDurhage.com slash blueprint. We'll see you next time on Authentic Living with Roxanne.